It's Stock Stories, episode 81. Welcome, welcome. This is the Stock Stories Podcast. My name is Alex and I am your host today. Thank you so much for listening. Stock Stories is the podcast dedicated to helping you, the individual investor, make better investing decisions. Yes, and we do that by looking at case studies of real companies every single week, as well as looking at mental models to understand the philosophy behind how we're actually making our decisions. So learning from the practical side, learning from the theoretical side, I think both are supremely important, but we do spend most of our time focused on digging into those companies. So let's get into it without further ado. Let's talk about Under Armour. All right, let's talk about Under Armour, ticker symbol UAA. Now, real quick, I just want to note that there are a couple different ticker symbols for Under Armour. There's UAA and UA. The UAA shares are voting shares that are class A, and the UA shares do not have any voting rights and are class C shares. So if you're ever looking up Under Armour as a company, you'll notice that dual class share structure. Just FYI, that's what that means. All right, Under Armour. Under Armour was started by a man named Kevin Plank, who is still the CEO of the company. And he started back in the 1990s. So he was a fullback at the University of Maryland. And he noticed that his shirts when he was practicing and playing would just get really, really sweaty. But his compression shorts kept him dry. So he thought, well, what if I take that material and put it into a shirt? So he started out by making a prototype shirt with the same material. And that is how Under Armour was born. In 1996, he started sharing his prototype shirts with his NFL and college friends. And he would drive up and down the East Coast selling out of the trunk of his car. Sound familiar? Well, if you listen to the Nike episode, you know that there's a similar story with the founder there of just prototype shoes and selling them out at out of their car at track meets. So similar story. And the thing is, because of that initial recognition, you know, Plank had a couple NFL players actually wearing his clothes. And that was a big deal. So that's really how Under Armour as a brand started to get noticed. And from there, he started making contacts with some Division I football teams all around the country. And another big break was that in 1999, he got into the movie Any Given Sunday with his Under Armour apparel. So little by little, he was making these inroads 
into different media, into the awareness of the public through through professional and college athletes wearing his his stuff. And things started growing from there. There were some obstacles along the way. For example, there was the Extreme Football League here in America, or the XFL, which had a brief season in 2001, and Under Armour was the supplier of all of the apparel for that league, which if it had taken off, it would have been a a huge deal, but uh, it failed pretty miserably. But uh, there, there was still a lot of investments being made, and Under Armour kept pushing forward. So in 2003, they had their first television ad, and they brought out their slogan, Protect This House. And that has become the Under Armour slogan, similar to Nike's Just Do It. At that point, Under Armour had reached sufficient scale where it had attracted several million dollars from private investors to keep it growing. And then in 2005, Under Armour had its initial public offering on the NASDAQ exchange, raising over $150 million. So this was a turning point. They had some capital flowing in. And remember, if, if you had listened to the Nike episode, you know that this business of apparel and shoes is a difficult business. It's not something that you can just start overnight because in order to be able to charge premium prices for really fashion, in a sense, you're, you're really selling fashion, even though uh, their performance equipment to a degree you're selling a certain brand. And so in order to get people to pay more for that brand, you need to create awareness and awareness of a brand can take a long time to build, especially in the apparel world where so many brands fail every year. So at this point, Under Armour had this turning point in 2005, they had their IPO and then they started getting some wins. So they later allied with the university of Notre Dame and UCLA over in California, and they signed contracts to supply their teams with exclusive Under Armour apparel. And a lot of those contracts were put in place just a few years ago, 2015, 2016 timeframe. And, and that has been a big, a big help because this is really literally what Nike did decades ago. (laughs) Nike, allied with the best sports teams they allied with professional athletes and they used them to create brand awareness and under armor is using the same exact formula but of course they have their own brands they have their own technology which is different and and well in, in some ways it's the same i think they have their own relative differences with intellectual property of course but The basic model is the same, which is why I'm not going into too much detail on this because we've seen this before. Uh, Get get people to use your brand first, create that awareness, and then because the awareness reaches a critical point, critical mass, then people start clamoring to buy your stuff. So between 2013 and 2015, Under Armour spent hundreds of millions of dollars on acquisitions. But they weren't buying other apparel brands necessarily. They were buying fitness apps. So they bought the fitness apps, Map My Fitness. They also bought My Fitness Pal and the fitness app maker Endomondo. 
So there was hundreds of millions spent on these acquisitions. And these, as we'll see later, they actually do contribute to the bottom line, albeit in a smaller, smaller way compared to the apparel and footwear. And there continue to be struggles with Under Armour as far as getting deals too. So on the one hand, they have these deals with UCLA, Notre Dame. They've got, they've got a lot of presence there, but they also had a deal with the major league baseball league. So MLB, but that ended up falling through and Nike ended up getting the majority of the deal. So Nike has been a fierce competitor. Adidas has been a fierce competitor. Uh, but the thing is, Under Armour is a lot smaller, so there's a higher potential for growth, right? If you're the market share leader, you're on the you're constantly on the defense because people are trying to attack you. But if you're the second or third or fourth biggest player in the industry, well, you have enough size to be known, but you also have to be on the offensive because you're trying to take that market share away from competitors. Um, also, and this is considering if the total market isn't growing, which of course it is to a degree, but uh, taking market share is going to be, I think, a huge, huge uh, indicator of Under Armour success or failure in the future, whether or not they're able to actually do that. Now, one of Under Armour's biggest wins is they signed basketball player Stephen Curry to have his own footwear line with them. So he has the Curry series of shoes, and when Steph Curry won the MVP title some years back, the the sales of his shoes skyrocketed, and Under Armour benefited greatly from that. So it just goes to show how powerful allying with the biggest of the biggest stars really is to building a brand. It's the same thing that Nike did when they got Michael Jordan to sign with them, when they got LeBron James to sign with them. Under Armour was able to get Curry to sign with them, but they lost out on Kevin Durant. Nike got Kevin Durant. So you have these differences and you have these failures and successes where everyone's vying for the top athletes. So as far as where the sales of this business actually come from, unlike Nike, they're they're in footwear, but they're not as heavy in footwear. They don't have those same footwear roots that Nike does. Under Armour's roots are in apparel. So 72% of the sales come from, oh, sorry, two thirds of the sales come from apparel, 20% come from footwear. And then the rest is a combination of the accessories. There's some licensing income that the company makes. And they also make income from their, they call it connected fitness. So from their fitness apps, but that's a very small percentage of the revenue. As far as geographically where the sales are located, over 70% come from North America, and then the rest are spread more or less evenly internationally with uh, Eastern Europe and Middle East and Africa and, or sorry, not Eastern Europe, but Europe in general, and then Asia Pacific, those regions are growing the fastest but North America has the most overall sales right now. So even though some deals have been lost, Under Armour still does have current partnerships with the NFL and with the NBA. They're not exclusive suppliers by any means. Nike is still all up in there. But they do sell 
they do sell team apparel. So they have a foot in the door, which I think is really important because if you want exposure, you've got to be in alliance with these leagues. You've got to be in alliance with these top players. Most of their products are manufactured in Jordan, Vietnam, China, and Malaysia. So Asian countries are a big part of the story here because if you have a good relationship with your suppliers, you can make products cheaply, get higher operating margins, and then make more profits in the future. So they have, again, I'm just noticing similarity upon similarity with Nike. Nike also has manufacturing facilities in a lot of the same countries. Now, over the past five years, looking at the finances, I'm not going to go deep, deep into the numbers. I'm just going to give a higher level overview because I think that's a little bit more relevant and I think, frankly, easier to digest. So over the past several years, revenues have grown from $3 billion to $5 billion. But um, unfortunately, the North American share of revenues has decreased slightly over time. So even though the business overall is growing, it's mainly coming from international expansion. The gross profit of about $2 billion has largely been unchanged over the past few years. But in 2018 and 2017, Under Armour has undergone a lot of restructuring costs, which have resulted in negative earnings per share. Yes, you heard that right. Negative earnings per share. And this is a company that's in the S&P 500. So this occasionally happens with large businesses. They take some big one-time or two-time losses or they go through a struggle. And sometimes they fail outright, but a lot of times they come back because they have they have enough scale, they have enough money behind them that they can they can weather the storm. I think it remains to be seen personally whether Under Armour will do this because I think this industry, even, even for Nike, earnings and revenue can be so volatile. And I mean, it took Nike close to 30 years to really build momentum. And I think we're seeing a similar trend with Under Armour. I think Long term, there's a strong chance they could be successful. They've built a lot of brand awareness. But, I mean, let me just continue. (laughs) I'll get to more thoughts. So, before I finish talking about the splits of revenue, Europe, the Middle East and Africa, and Asian Pacific, those regions have revenue growing respectively at 25% annually. And the connected fitness segment is growing at 18% annually. But this is revenue growth. This is not profit growth. Looking at the profits, their profits have suffered, actually. Overall overall profit growth is not happening. And also, the SG&A expense, which SG&A stands for Selling General and Administrative. So these are things like, uh, you know, all the, the office equipment and the salaries and payroll, et cetera, et cetera those expenses have been growing pretty significantly over the past several years. So revenues grow, SG&A expenses grow. And if you think about it, in order to ally with these professional athletes, you've got to convince them not to go with Nike or Adidas, right? So <laughs> those companies have deep, deep pockets. You've got to spend literally hundreds of millions of dollars to convince a single superstar to sign with you. And that takes a lot of money. It, it takes a lot of capital. 
and it's money that's not going back into the shareholders' pockets. So that's something important to note there. But still, there are good signs of decreasing debt on the balance sheet and growing cash on the balance sheet over the past few years. Under Armour has had a lot of interest expenses in the past few years, and they've been gradually cutting down that debt level, long-term debt, and that cash pile has been growing somewhat. So that's encouraging to see, especially in an era where a lot of large multinational companies are doing the exact opposite. Under Armour's management seems to at least recognize that, hey, we need to we need to de-risk here if we're going to be successful in the long term. So, so that's what's going on there. Uh, as far as returning cash to shareholders, they don't pay dividends, they don't do any buybacks, but they don't dilute their stock really either. So it's pretty negligible. Another thing to note is that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode the A shares and the C shares. Well, why do they just skip from A to C? Well, no, no, no. There's B shares as well, but you and I can't trade those. Those are owned by the CEO, Kevin Plank, and those are super voting shares, which allow him effectively to control the company. So a lot of companies do this now where they have a dual class share structure in order for the founders to maintain control while still raising money as a public company. So yeah, I have some thoughts on that, but it is what it is, right? Like as a, as a public shareholder, you want to be able to have a say in the company, but at the same time, does it really matter anyway? Because here's little me with my shares and you know, these, these investment firms and these founders, they own millions and millions of dollars worth of shares. So I'm not even going to have a seat at the table anyway, when it comes to voting over important matters, but still, Nevertheless, I do think it is important to have that ownership of the company because that's, I mean, that's really capitalism, right? You own a piece of the profits. You own a piece of the profits. So even if you don't own the right to vote, in in the case of the UA ticker symbol shares, you still own a piece of the profits, which in this case right now, Under Armour is not profitable but I do think long-term, I think they could be profitable. They've proven in the past that they can make money. It's just in the last couple of years, they have had to spend a lot of money. They've had to spend a lot of money maintaining their brand. And that's the reality. But revenues are growing, and I think that, that that's a positive. So currently, Under Armour, the, the ticker symbol UAA, trades at about $20 per share. And... The earnings per share is negative, so you have a negative price-to-earnings ratio, right? So we can't use that as a metric at all for understanding value. So what I did was I looked at the operating cash flow in the most recent fiscal year, so 2018, and I compared that to the number of shares outstanding to get a cash flow per share number. So Under Armour made over $600 million in operating cash flow. And if you divide that out over 221 million shares, you get about $2.71 per share, cash flow per share. And if you then take the stock price and divide it by that cash flow per share, $20 divided by 271 gives you just over 7.3. So about a seven times multiple 
of the operating cash flow per share is what you would be paying to own Under Armour right now. But what does that actually mean? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Let's compare it to, to a competitor to see what that actually means. So I went ahead and looked up Nike's numbers. Nike made almost $5 billion in operating cash flow. So just, just for a second comparison, $600 million in operating cash flow, $5 billion in operating cash flow. So you can see the difference in size there. Nike is a much larger company. So $5 billion in cash flow divided by over $1.2 billion shares gives you $3.87 in operating cash flow per share. What's the stock price of Nike right now? It's about $86. So $86 divided by $3.87 gives you a 22 times multiple of operating cash. So from this perspective, I mean, 22 versus 7, you're looking at a business that's a third of the price of Nike, but you also have a big difference in quality. You have a big difference in scale. Nike is the leader. Nike is in every sport. Nike has deals with everyone. They're all over the world already. Their brand awareness is powerful. And they actually are making tons of profits. It's volatile, but they're making tons of profits. On the other hand, you have Under Armour, who has come a long way from their early days in the 90s. They have some good deals, but they've had some misses as well. And the restructuring charges of the past few years have hurt them. Um, Not to mention their sales growth in North America has basically stagnated. Their, Their growth is coming entirely from international markets and their digital platforms. Um, but those are such a small percent of the of the revenue that is not making a huge difference overall in the overall profit pie and the overall revenue pie. So that's something to keep in mind. So for this reason, I'm not that interested in Under Armour right now. I think it's intriguing to potentially buy into the the next Nike, so to speak. And they have proven themselves in a lot of ways. I'm not discounting that. They They've done amazing things in the past few decades. But as an investor, especially in an industry that has volatility like this, I mean, you're basically selling fashion for athletes. That's that's what you're selling. And athletes, they they could just, you know, wear any old shirt or any old jersey. I mean, <sighs> okay, so so let me back up. So I understand there's a performance aspect to some of these clothes right? So Under Armour has their cold gear clothing line. They have their, their hot gear clothing line um, that has certain types of fabrics to move moisture around depending on the, the environment that you're in. I get that. There's a performance aspect to Nike shoes. You can run better with a lighter shoe. They're more comfortable. That's all true. But at the end of the day, it's still fashion, you're selling a brand. When you're Nike, you're selling that swoosh logo. That's what you're selling. When you are Under Armour, you're selling that UA logo. That's at the end of the day is what consumers are buying. I think more so than just purely for functional or performance reasons. The performance reasons are just an excuse, another excuse to buy it, I think, <laughs> for a lot of people. So that's my feeling on Under Armour. Again, it's a company that's grown a lot. It's come a long way, but it's it's had some headwinds. And right now, I don't really know necessarily how to value it well 
just based on the cash flows uh, because of the, the slowing revenue growth and the restructuring charges that have taken a hit the past two years. So this is one that I think uh, I'm going to wait and see and just look at more data, see how 2019 goes for them, see how 2020 goes for them. And a lot of times as investors, we profit most from periods of uncertainty. So who knows, maybe buying shares at $20 a share right now is an excellent decision. I don't know. I don't know enough about the business, but from what I've seen, um, it's just, it is not as dominant as someone like Nike is. So, um, but again, it's, it may or may not be trading at a premium valuation. <laughs> so that's what makes investing so interesting is trying to, to understand how much do you pay for what level of quality and what level of scale and what level of growth. Um, so those are my thoughts. Thank you so much for listening to the Stock Stories podcast. Again, my name is Alex. I'm your host here with you every week. So thank you for listening. If you want to help the show out, um, I noticed that the reviews on this show are great. Thank you so much for the reviews and the ratings, but there's just a few of them. (laughs) We need some more reviews and ratings uh, because that really helps get the show in front of more people, helping more people learn about stocks and investing. So if you have the time, I would appreciate it. If you just write a quick review on whatever platform you're using, that would help me immensely. So thank you so much for listening to the show and supporting and sharing the show. If you want to reach out to me, I'm accessible via email, alex at stockstoriespodcast.com, or hit me up on Instagram. I'm also there, stockstories1. That's stockstories and the number one. I'll see you next week. presented here on Stock Stories is for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes only. You and you alone are responsible for your investment and financial decisions. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, or financial advisor that can analyze your specific situation in the context of your goals and circumstances.